you are now permanently connected to God through your union with Christ. And um, that is a, a marriage that can't be torn apart. And everything about your spiritual blessings, but your spiritual, also your spiritual identity, your human identity is now connected to that intimate relationship where Christ is in you and you are in Christ. I think that's totally radical because it's not a God out there right. that, whose attention you're trying to catch or you ever have to worry, oh, the gods have left me or the gods have, you know, now showing favor to someone else. No, this, this is a picture of like, you are now connected together in a permanent spiritual union that nothing can separate. Something happened in, in the midst of this culture. What you're describing, your experience is all of a sudden now. And it's an intentional Con Campbell, welcome back to Faith in the Folds. How are you today, sir? Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having me again. Uh, I'm, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Yeah, good to be with you. Glad to have you here. Uh, as I said before we uh, before we got started recording, I absolutely love your shirt. It uh, makes me feel right at home living here on the beach. I uh, I think you've uh, you've got a great shirt there. Thanks. Yeah, it was a Christmas gift from my daughter, so I think she chose that well. Yeah. She uh, she chose wisely. She did. So, well, Gon, um, where are you at these days? Uh, what are you teaching? Mm -hmm. What uh, what's going on with mm -hmm. you since we uh, last saw you last year on the podcast? Mm. Uh, well, I'm living in Canberra as I was then, um, which is the capital city of Australia. In case uh, viewers are uh, not aware of that fact, it's not. They're going to start googling right uh, now. Yeah, it's it's Canberra. Uh, it's about three hours south of. Sydney by car um but um I have two two roles actually so I'm a research director professor and research director at Sydney College of Divinity uh, but Sydney College of Divinity is increasingly not based in Sydney we're sort of spread around the country these days mm. um so yeah but uh um, overseeing our cohort mainly of uh, PhD students uh doctoral candidates and supervising some of those. Uh, my other role is at the Australian National University where I teach jazz performance at the School of Music. So uh, yeah, that's sort of what I got up to during the week. Sadarin, um, uh, didn't mean to drop this one on you, but uh, which is more fun? I uh, prefer not to comment on this platform. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's fair, <laughs> that's fair. Well, I was going to mention at some point in the in the podcast today that uh, I am excited that um, I, I was following you on social media over the summer where you were writing a, a new jazz album that is coming out soon. Can you tell us uh, briefly about that? Yeah, I was in Greece and I uh, spent um, my time in Athens composing uh, some tunes uh, that would be for this next album. We're recording it in about two weeks time. Uh, and the album is a concept album uh, combining jazz with uh, the Greek traditional urban music called Rebetica. Um, so I've been studying Rebetica for um, the last year and a half or so. 
and um, this album is sort of like a culmination of bringing that research together. And so it was nice to be able to be actually in Athens and during the evenings I would go and listen to as much Greek music as I could. But during the day I'd sit at the foot of the Acropolis and, and write a tune about the Acropolis or I'd go to uh, City and write a tune about City and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it was really fun and looking forward to that coming out. Man, that's neat. That's really neat. I... um. I got to, uh, I think I mentioned this last time that you were on, um, the church that I worked at uh, when I was um, up in Kentucky at Asbury Seminary working on my doctorate. We uh, we watched In Pursuit of Paul and In Pursuit of Peter. And mm-hmm. uh, in one of those, I think there is actually a short clip of you at some, like some jazz club actually playing mm-hmm. a little bit. And it was so neat for me because, you know, I, I, I've got, uh, you know, I've got a musical family, but I played saxophone in particular. I've got my alto and my and my Barry sax back home. And to uh, see this guy, it's like, man, not only is Khan like a really legit New Testament scholar, the guy can play some serious jazz too. Like, man, this is cool. I really appreciate this. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, that was uh, in Rome at the end of In Pursuit of Paul at a great little jazz club there and uh, played with some of the top players in Rome. Uh, one of my friends managed to uh, connect me to and uh, that was a real treat to even though we just played you know basically half an hour's worth of music for the yeah. footage uh it was really fun to play with those guys so rome's got a really killer jazz scene so yeah that's that's neat i'm i'm excited about that um anticipated release date for the album well uh actually i haven't decided whether it will be a december release or a january february release i think we'll we'll see after we've recorded it uh what what we'll do there because um we want to coordinate it with reviewers timetables so that we can get in scheduled in to get some good reviews and stuff like that so yeah, yeah. well hopefully it'll be uh be out in time for uh for christmas but you said it's a digital release so stock yeah stuff that stocking with gift cards to be able to buy that thing on that's right online. yeah spotify <laughs> apple music yeah, yeah that's it there you go well um this year in addition to preparing the jazz album this year you have also published two books that have garnered quite a bit of attention uh commentary on ephesians in the um in the pillar new testament commentary series and the mm. provocatively titled jesus versus evangelicals now before we get mm. to that last one let's talk about your commentary first Help us set the context a little bit. What kind of place was first century AD Ephesus? And what was the typical religious and spiritual worldview like for maybe the average person in Ephesus? Mm. Well, I think Ephesus was quite a fascinating place. And uh, it was the third or maybe fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, uh, but very different from the kind of quite Western Rome. So over there in the east, you know, located on the west coast of modern-day Turkey, um, Ephesus was really a hub for what we refer to uh, back then as Asia Minor. Uh, And um, there was a a pretty interesting mishmash of um, spiritual and religious practice and belief. Um, So most people probably know that in Ephesus was located um, the magnificent temple to the goddess Artemis, which was one of the 
seven one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world, and uh, it was this huge, amazing um, construction. And worshippers would come from all over the world, but especially from Asia Minor, to go um, visit that temple. But um, so uh, uh, Artemis was, you know, the kind of supreme goddess through that region, but not by any means the only god or goddess that was worshipped and there were a real uh pantheon of um egyptian gods and uh, asian gods and roman gods and greek gods and goddesses etc um but what i find interesting is that the temple of artemis was also the central financial hub of the area you know it was a, it operated as a bank in fact uh and so it sh- sort of shows you that um they certainly did not have this neat separation between their religion and their daily lives, the sacred and secular. It was all rolled up together. And, um, and I think that was, that was probably generally true in most places in the first century, but we see that especially in that area around Ephesus where the worship of the goddess was, was connected to the trade. It was connected to the finance. It was connected to um, cultural realities, festivals, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et there was also a um, very strong fascination with magic in the area, and so I wondered if you were going to touch on this. Yeah, tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we've uncovered a lot of uh, inscriptions, so written into pieces of stone or or whatever, uh, as well as papyri, um, spells and incantations um, that that reflect that um, there was quite a prevalent interest in well, in magic, uh, in, in trying to improve your life or, or improve someone else's life or maybe uh, unimprove someone else's life, you know. That's a really through, polite way to say it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah through, through incantations and, and religious ritual, uh, sorry, magical rituals and practices. So pretty interesting place, I think. Yeah. Um, the ancient magic, you know, when we think of magic today, right, we might think of... Um, you know, guys making tigers disappear on stage and, you know, or yeah. when we think of magic, we might think of people flying around on broomsticks, trying to throw, you know, giant balls into hoops and things like that. Mm. Um, mm. What, what was, what was maybe different about ancient magic that, you know, is not what we would think of today? Like what, what were some characteristics yeah. of ancient magic and, why why was it so fascinating to so many people Mm. yeah well i think when we when we speak of magic today we do probably it's probably better termed um an illusionist you know someone who can uh tricks of you know um slipping things out of their sleeves and yeah sleight of hand yeah Mm -hmm. sleight of hand and we and we all know that there's nothing uh like literally magical about it or supernatural about it it's it's literally uh um it operates in a materialist worldview where we're just where what we're amazed by is not by supernatural power but we're amazed by this person's ability to trick me and how did they do that yeah and i can't i i can't figure out that trick but Mm -hmm. we know it's a trick um uh this is very different from ancient magic which very much believed in a worldview where there were 
supernatural elements and forces uh, that operated in the world and behind the world that we could see to the material world was certainly not all there there is and not only did they worship gods and goddesses which are obviously regarded as supernatural uh, but they believed that the supernatural world could be manipulated through incantations and spells um, so that you could actually um, you know make things happen Um, you could cast a spell on someone you could um, you know improve your own chances in this or that Um, and and basically you know in in some ways they're the sorts of things that people would try to achieve by prayer as well and worship of the deities but in a way I think magic was a sort of way of trying to get the same results but without having to you know I'm not going to bother with a deity I'm just going to like you know work with the the way they believed that the the supernatural world was kind of constructed, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I like the way you put that. Uh, the way that the the way that the supernatural world was constructed. I've I've taught in classes here at church and in academic settings that it, it seems like magic in the in the mindset of um, of a lot of ancient peoples was the process or the processes by which you could. You know, persuade or coerce spiritual beings to, to essentially do what you wanted them to do, mm. and um, it's you know there's there's also some maybe relevance to that in how God refuses to be treated in that mm. way, um, which would be to debase God basically to think that you can you know, just control Him through some. Magical incantation or prayer or special sacrifice or something like that, as if he's going to mechanically do what you would want him to do. Um, mm. So, is it fair to say then that in the ancient world, particularly in Ephesus, but maybe maybe throughout the Mediterranean, that that uh, that those cultures were more spiritually sensitive than maybe a lot of folks in the more Western parts of the world? Is that a fair characterization? Mm. Yeah, I think it is a fair characterization, but um, but even in the sort of secular West, I think it's interesting that um, there seems to be a rising interest in spirituality, just a sort of spirituality that's not connected to any sort of official religion. So spiritual, not religious, is is often you know the the phrase that's bandied about, and uh, I think a lot of it actually bears some similarity with the sorts of things that we were just discussing about the ancient world where there are maybe um, spiritual elements or elemental beings um, or the way the spiritual world is constructed that can be manipulated through certain practices. Um, And you you don't need to go to a church or anything for that. Uh, In fact, it might not have anything to do with Christian belief um, or any other any of the other major religions, but um, but this sort of sense in there, you know, and we we might um, label some of that like the occult or or a sort of Wicca kind of stuff, or you know, astrology or those sorts of things that they're, they're still relatively popular. And and I my non um, expert impression is that that seems to be growing again. Yeah. Um, so. It's interesting, yeah. It's not entirely secular, you know. Um, that's a that's secularism. a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry to talk over you. Um, 
I've I've seen here in the U.S. and, and maybe you can comment on how it is in in Australia also. I've seen here in the U.S. a a more public acceptance of things that are you know, related to to related to witchcraft and, and not just like you know silly halloween you know pointy hats and you know flying on brooms mm -hmm. and things like that but things that are more more seemingly more realistically grounded in you know mm -hmm. witchcraft practices and and really overt uh, displays of satanism in you know mm -hmm. like amongst like popular music artists and things like that I, I i've seen that more in the last oh um maybe six or seven years in mm. uh, in the us um mm. we'll get to we'll actually get to get to this uh rather polarizing figure uh here in just a moment but um i think it was in 2015 or 2016 i saw an article where um witches of the united states were calling on each other to uh to cast curses on Donald Trump, mm. um, you know, and I, I hadn't, I hadn't seen any big calls like that uh, up to, you know, up to the 2016 election. It, is it similar in, in Australia? Well, uh, well, we don't have a Donald Trump. Uh, the, fair uh, enough. Okay. But, <laughs> okay fair, <laughs> enough. fair enough. Um, I think it, in, in certain parts of Australia. Yeah. It's, um, it's, um, it's growing in prominence, I think, but this is just my anecdotal impression. It's not yeah. something that I've studied. And I think the acceptance of it is growing too. But what I've noticed as well along these lines is, is interesting um, when people, very secular people, if we put it like that, mm. um, don't want to adhere to any religion or spirituality or any of that sort of magical related stuff. But they'll say stuff like... Um, well, whatever the universe wants, you know, um, yeah. and, you know, the universe will, you know, and I'm like, that's interesting because as far as I understand, the universe doesn't have a mind, right? Um, the universe doesn't have a will, um, but they're, they're actually, and I, and I don't know if they're just saying that for rhetorical reasons or if they're actually positing sort of semi-divine properties on the universe um, so it's a way of espousing a kind of spiritual worldview, but by calling it the universe, it's like, oh, I'm only talking about, you know, material things. I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, spiritual things, but the universe has a mind and a will. And I'm like, hmm, okay. Which you know. feels really spiritual, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like pantheism or panentheism, you know, mm -hmm. uh, actually. But anyway. Yeah. I uh, a couple of episodes ago, I interviewed Justin Brierley, the uh, the British mm -hmm. uh, apologist, and because uh, he's got a book coming out, I think maybe this month or next month, on this surprising mm -hmm. rebirth in the belief in, in belief in God, and he has found similar kinds of things where people who would have previously very adamantly. Uh, promoted a, a secular materialistic worldview are now beginning to question that um and it it seems as if one of the main reasons why is that it's it, it's unfulfilling and that they yeah. have found something more fulfilling particularly 
in the gospel. Um, yeah. And I, that just, yeah. that's what a roundabout way to get to it. And he, he has this great line about, you know, thank God for Richard Dawkins who brought the discussion of God back into the limelight. And now people mm -hmm. who had once previously decided that God, the God hypothesis was uh, unsatisfactory. They're now mm -hmm. revisiting that. And it was mm -hmm. oddly thanks to a guy like Richard Dawkins. So. It's interesting, isn't it? And I suppose from our perspective, it ought not be surprising, mm -hmm. but um but yeah, it, it is interesting the way these things sort of think themselves through back around um, mm -hmm. to, you know, where they began, maybe, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the worldview of maybe the average person in Ephesus was, I think, more spiritually sensitive than, than many, uh, although that might be changing these days. Um, walk us through Paul's overarching message in mm. Ephesians, what's what's his point? What is he, what's he really driving for in those six mm. uh, short but very powerful chapters? Yeah, they really are powerful chapters. I think um, in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul really scales the heights of um, picturing a kind of cosmic universal Christ mm. who is at the center of all reality. And he is the reconciling figure who brings and holds everything together. Uh, and then it, it, it sort of narrows down from that big picture to talk about um, humanity and in particular the church and within the church, Jew and Gentile reconciliation, uh, as well as individual reconciliation with God. So <clears throat> it sort of covers the whole spectrum, but the thing that brings all those concepts together is, is the concept that Christ is reconciler. He is the one who holds it all together while being supreme above all. And that includes, you know, um, specifically includes the, the powers and authorities um, and competing often malevolent spiritual forces. Um, and so I think the, the message to the Ephesians and, and by the way, as, as you may know from reading the commentary, I don't think the letter was addressed specifically or only to the church in Ephesus, but to churches around Ephesus. But if, if Ephesus was the hub, the big mm -hmm. city. Um, and so the letter is sort of associated with that city. But, but really the message applies to everyone living in that area, in that region, in uh, Western Asia Minor, because they, they very acutely live a reality where they're they're aware um that there are spiritual powers um and forces operating that affect their daily life yeah um as we mentioned before no sacred secular divide um these spiritual powers freely interact with with us um and so the letter to the ephesians acknowledges that actually and and says yes that that actually is the reality uh, and that's, first of all, quite um, maybe shocking for us today, because especially even Christians in the West, we tend to live a sacred secular divide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and there's God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and, oh, okay, the angels, they're in the spiritual realm, uh, but we live down here on earth and, da -da -da, and we can pray to God or whatever. But, but actually, Paul in Ephesians affirms the view that 
first of all, there are many other spiritual beings and entities besides Father, Son, Holy Spirit, plus the angels. Yeah. Um, and they're not all good. Uh, many of them are evil. Mm. Uh, they're in the heavens, all right, so the spiritual domain, um, and they interact with our daily world. And they are involved in in our sort of regular lives in unseen ways. So I think Paul actually acknowledges that, but the message to the Ephesians um, is that well, but Christ is supreme above all those powers. Mm -hmm. They have been, the ones that are opposed to God have been defeated um, through Jesus' resurrection and ascension, uh, that he is seated above them at God's right hand and they are under his feet. And this is an incredibly powerful message for anyone who fears that world. Um, because I think if you, if you grow up living in this world where well, there, there might be a evil spiritual power behind every rock or, you know, like who might be out to get you or maybe someone's cast a spell on you or something like that. Or may have um, feared fate. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned um, astrological the, powers that are earlier. You know, that was yeah, a real quite palpable right. fear for a lot of people. Yeah, quite right. Thanks. Um, but a belief that Jesus is supreme and he is ruling now uh, at God's right hand is an incredibly powerful message. Um, and everything follows from that. Yeah. It's um, I, I love I love the the thought progression through Ephesians because mm. um, I'll admit I'm. I'm more of a linear thinker. I was never never very good at improv. I <laughs> I couldn't. I, I just I just couldn't go with. All right, you've got these chords. Okay, go with that. I was never very good mm -hmm. at that. Um, but man, I can follow instructions on how to build. You know something if you just give me step by step. Right. Paul's letter to the Ephesians feels more uh, linear, where chapters one, two, and three are all about. You know what God has done for us in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then there's this beautiful word at the very beginning of chapter four. Therefore, meaning okay, mm -hmm. on that basis, right here mm -hmm. is how you ought to live. In a lot of Paul's other letters, he meanders from you know, mm -hmm. if you want to break it down into doctrinal and ethical, th th those might be kind of you know strict. Or overly stringent categories, but I, I think they communicate for what we're mm. trying to do here. Um, mm. In a lot of his other letters, he kind of spirals in and out of you know, doctrinal and, and ethical matters. In Ephesians, it's you know, seemingly doctrine and ethics, and mm. you know he he wanders all the way through, uh, like what you said, um, you know, Jew and Gentile reconciliation, reconciliation with uh, with God. Talk to us a little bit about some of what that reconciliation with God would look like, particularly this phrase in Christ and union with God, which mm -hmm. I know you have done some work on elsewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, briefly mm -hmm. sort of walk us through what does Paul mean in, in his letters when he says we are in Christ? Mm. Well, I think Ephesians is one of the places par excellence to, to get at that question in the opening chapter um, which is really very much an introduction to the rest of the book, uses the phrase in him, in Christ, through Christ, uh, you know, no less than 13 times in the first 
14 verses. Mm-hmm. So basically every sentence is, every, every phrase even is connected. And, and what he does in the prologue is, is it's kind of like a machine gun approach. R- references, well, I guess the heading is verse 3, where in Christ we've, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Yeah. And and then he sort of rattles off all these spiritual blessings, you know, that we've been chosen <laughs> by God, that we've yeah. been a, we've been adopted, we've been saved, we've been reconciled, we've been forgiven our sins, we've been, you know, um, you know, we receive the spirit. But all but the key is every one of these is in Christ mm-hmm. or in him. And so really the opening of the letter is saying every spiritual blessing that you have from God has come to you in and through Christ. Um, and so that's the first thing that you learn about it. Um, that there's there's no element of the Christian life that is not in some way uh, coming to us be, through our union with Christ. It's an incredible. This is not like punctuation, you know, when people say um, and Paul says in Christ. You know, it's not like it's not <laughs> yeah. like just yeah. a rhetorical <laughs> flourish. You know, it it actually. <laughs> But but unfortunately, people will have read it that way. You know? Yeah, it's like oh, you you keep dropping this in Christ. And that's just Paul. It know? sounds good, yeah. right? My brothers and sisters yeah. in Christ. You know, that sounds like what you're supposed to say, right? But there's a real yeah. there's real spiritual substance behind that. There there absolutely is, yeah. and then and then when you move into chapter two, you start to see some of that. So chapter two begins by saying that you're you're spiritually before Christ, you're spiritually dead. You're cut off from God. You're unable to reach out to God. You're unable to improve your spiritual station. Um, but God is the one who, because of his love and mercy, reaches out to you and made us alive with Christ mm-hmm. and raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavens with Christ, mm-hmm. with Christ, with Christ, with Christ. And so this beautiful passage that we all love Ephesians 2, and especially verses 1 to 10, um, that we're, we're saved by grace through faith in verses 8 and 9, uh, not by our works, you know, Protestant purple passage. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the Put that on the a whole, flag the, somewhere, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but the mechanics of that, in a way that's kind of the conclusion, the mechanics that get you there is union with Christ. Mm-hmm. You're made alive with Christ, um, seated, raised with Christ, seated with Christ. So, and therefore you can say we're saved by grace, not by works because it's Christ who's done the heavy lifting and union, our union with Christ in particular, that has, has um, changed our station so that when you started off dead and literally walking in the ways of the world in verse 10, you are now walking um, in a way that's pleasing to God in the works that he has prepared in advance for you to do. Yeah. Yeah. I I love um, those two bookends there, right? Chapter two, verse two, which you used to walk according to mm. kind of the age of this world. Verse ten, mm. you know these uh, these works that God has prepared beforehand so that we might walk in mm. them. Beautiful bookends. Um, yeah. But then, especially in verses five and six, which you just mentioned, right? When you emphasized that yeah. that very important preposition with. This is mm. this is one place where I actually take some time to um, to walk through my Bible classes in a church setting, so a non-specialist setting, where I actually emphasize a little bit of Greek grammar here and say each mm. of these verbs that we've got here was it made alive with, raised with, and seated with. 
each of those have a prefixed preposition on there that the the word with is stuck right on the front of there for Paul to emphasize what God has done for you in Christ. And I, thankfully, I, I do see a lot of light bulbs go off uh, with my students uh, in a church setting. They really get just how impactful that is. Con, uh, for somebody living in a, in a setting, kind of help us round this conversation out. For somebody living in a place like Ephesus, very spiritually sensitive, we see um, in, uh, in just – Luke gives us just a little bit of what Paul does in Ephesus there in Acts chapter 19. Uh, we see Paul meeting the disciples of John, uh, John the Baptist. Um, we see about the uh, seven sons of Sceva. We see the, um, the people who burn their uh, magical papyri to a, an astronomical sum of money. And then we see the whole episode with uh, uh, with Demetrius, the silversmith. Mm. Um, mm. You know, we don't get very much in there, but there's a lot of very spiritually charged things happening in, mm. in that snapshot that Luke gives us. For someone living in that reality, why is all of this stuff such good news? Mm. Yeah, I think um, it's good news because, first of all, the God who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is for us, and he loves us. So Amen. in verse 5, chapter mm -hmm. 2, because of God's mercy, because of God's love, his mercy and his love, he, and he makes the first move towards us. So this is so counter- to basically everything in that spiritual world in Ephesus that we were referring to earlier, where the worshiper has to make a spell or they have to um, beseech the deity to have mercy. Please be kind to me. Please improve my life or this or that, or please, you know, kill that other person or, or whatever yeah. it is. Like, you know, it's up to me and, and the gods, can they be moved? Can we, convince them to be kind we're never really sure if they're for us they seem to be quite capricious uh, they're really kind of self-centered teenagers it feels like you know like they're just out for them yeah. uh and um that's very different from from the god of the bible in general but 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 especially as you see in in ephesians 2 we're in this spiritual situation of deadness and god motivated purely because he's loving and merciful reaches out and raises the spiritually dead. Um, and so that just by itself, I find incredibly comforting. And I think that someone living in first century emphasis would, would find that as a revelation. Um, and um, it's, it's so much more secure. Also everything that we've been talking about in terms of union with Christ, it's actually a spiritual, a spirituality that says, you are now permanently connected to God um, through your union with Christ. And um, that is a, a marriage that can't be torn apart. Um, and everything about your spiritual blessings, but your spiritual, also your spiritual identity, your human identity is now connected to that intimate relationship where Christ is in you and you are in Christ. Mm -hmm. um and i think that's again totally radical because it's not a god out there 
right. that whose attention you're trying to catch um, or, or the, or you ever have to worry, Oh, the gods have left me or the gods have, you know, now showing favor to someone else or whatever. No, this, this is a picture of like, you are now connected together in a permanent spiritual union that nothing can separate. Um, I mean, that's even now, now, even after 2000 years of getting used to that idea, it's still pretty mind blowing, really. Yeah. And I think would speak very meaningfully to those people who, like you described earlier, have some vague notion of the universe as something out there, although they speak to this mm. something as if it were someone. That mm. that should speak very powerfully into that sense of a sense of longing for mm. some kind of relationship. I, I at the risk of armchair psychoanalysis here. <laughs> I, that is kind of what it, it seems like though yeah and i mean um it's always been the view in christian theology that you know we we have a kind of god-shaped hole mm. and and nothing's going to um give us peace until we you know until we know god uh, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you mm. um augustine um, but, um, the, the skeptical side says, well, that you, you know, you're just treating God as a, as a, as a crutch because you've got psychological needs. Um, but I think, um, that's a lazy skepticism because, you know, as we were discussing earlier, even if you're perfectly, um, normal, rational person, eventually at some point you work through to come to the point where, you know, this materialism, that it's not satisfying. There must be more. We, we seem to always come back to this. We have a, a human um, capacity for more and a, and, and a need for more. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that can be explained as well. That's evolutionary kind of like, it's just sort of messing with us so that we survive as a species, you know, uh, but I just don't find that very compelling, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, all of this talk about this yearning for more, the union with Christ that is, you know, ultimately eternally satisfying and, um, the worldview that is represented in, in the new Testament that, um, that reminds me of your other book that you read mm -hmm. now I, i'm gonna i'm gonna segue this here for us pretty smoothly are you ready for this <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> we're going to uh to modulate i'm gonna drop a music term on you we're gonna modulate Ooh. pretty pretty smoothly okay. here. Man, nice um, nice modulation we we have seen uh particularly in american politics um which is uh, you know for better or worse um uh, you know i very much a, a a world player, but we've seen, I think, within the last uh, several years, um, many people would say, particularly around 2016, we've seen a, a a growing political idolatry amongst those who would claim Christ 
And you talk about this issue in your uh, other new book, Jesus versus Evangelicals. Um, you have uh, you have soundly critiqued evangelicalism uh, for its naked grasping of political power, and I th I think you're right. First, what do you mean by evangelical? And and next, you know, what what maybe are the problems? that you see with yeah. uh, evangelicals particularly uh, american evangelicals also keeping in mind that i well, am one so be gentle <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure um you know evangelical is a really slippery term and um i think it's useful to um break things up into three types of evangelicals the first is what I would call a theological evangelical, which is evangelical by theological conviction. Mm -hmm. um, and this has the best claim to the term stretching back 500 years to the Protestant Reformation, where there's a centrality on the atoning work of Christ, the authority of the scriptures, um, an emphasis on conversion and mission, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so even theological evangelicals know what they mean by the term, but it's not necessarily what other people mean by the term mm -hmm. evangelical. And the term is also used to mean what I would call cultural evangelicals. So there are people who um, may be described evangelical because of the, the, the crowd they run in, you know, uh, maybe they go to church that could be loosely described as evangelical, but even if they don't, they sort of have adopted um, cultural and spiritual characteristics inherited from theological evangelicalism but they don't necessarily share the theology of theological evangelicals they've just sort of picked up these cultural elements uh, then the third group uh, is what i would call political evangelicals and they also have picked up elements that maybe ultimately or originally were found in theological evangelicalism but they've they've sort of politicized these elements um, and um, they're really political warriors. And the, the, these are the ones that the media often jumps onto um, as wanting to Christianize the American nation, um, wanting to implement Christian theology um, as, you know, legally binding, uh, et cetera, et cetera, change policy to reflect, you know, a Christian world. Um, but there are probably many areas in which political evangelicals do not share the same theology as theological evangelicals. Now, I argue in the book that all these three streams exist. Um, for many people, uh, many people would belong to more than one, perhaps perhaps all three groups. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can't, you couldn't, in any meaningful sense, be labelled an evangelical if you don't belong to at least one of those groups. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I um, I I appreciated how you kind of delineate that in the book um i you know it, it is fashionable uh these days particularly in academic publishing to um you know to critique evangelicals and um you know e evangelical culture and and so forth and so on and so i i appreciated how you you know said okay when we say evangelical it, it cannot just be a, a single lump term there there are those who you know would use the term to really define you know some semblance of a theology surely right mm. 
the evangelical mm. theological society here, uh, or mm. not just in the U.S., but uh, you know, internationally, surely, right, it is not just this bastion, bastion of Trump supporters, which mm. you know, I, I, I can't imagine that that would be the case. Uh, and so then evangelical must mean more than right, just that that particular thing. And, and I, I appreciated your nuances there with that. Mm. Um, what's a Con, what's the problem? Why, why, <laughs> why, why the problem with uh, with particularly uh, American evangelicals and you know maybe what 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 can we uh, what what can be done about that? Hmm. Well, I guess in line with what I said earlier, you could probably group these into theological problems, cultural problems, and political problems. Okay. Um, let's start maybe with political because it's sort of the most obvious. Mm. Um, it's, um, <clears throat> I think it's well known that, that a huge proportion of people identifying as white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump and even more for his reelection. Yeah. And, um, and yet political commentators are, were at the time incredibly confused because here is a man who does not in any way share the moral values of typical white evangelicals. And in fact, this is the same group who pilloried Bill Clinton for his um, sexual indiscretions and said a man like that is not fit to be in the White House. You know, a man like that, if you can't lead your own family, how can you lead the nation? Uh, and yet many of those same people who said that about Bill Clinton through their full support behind Donald Trump, who's thrice married, brags about adulterous affairs uh, and uh, is well known for you know, misogynistic remarks and sexual abuse, um, and now is four times indicted, um, criminally indicted. Uh, but all these things that, you know, like if you applied um, the same arguments that were being used against Bill Clinton, there's no way those people would be supporting Donald Trump. But for some reason, all of a sudden, uh, you know, these indiscretions and character flaws and, and, well, let's be frank, like just hugely dysfunctional, like... Yeah, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Um. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry if any listeners are upset by this. But, uh, and, and, you know, like, and, and my friends in the States who did vote for Trump the first time, not sure about the second time, but... That's a yeah, we know this about him. Like, okay, he's not a perfect person. And yeah, he's, you know, he's a he's a flawed individual. But um they're focused on what he can achieve for the right. Christian cause. And and I think that's where we really get into oh, there was their focus um, on on what he can do for like promoting like politically promoting Christian values. Was that the I think it was more like, you know, he's going to get something done about abortion. He's going to, yeah. you know, push back against the sort of left liberal agenda, the, mm -hmm. the, the um, uh, debates about homosexual marriage and, and uh, gender dys dysphoria and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, he's really seen as a champion of the right. Um, and um and that's fine if, if you're just talking about, you know, you've got a political view 
and you're on the right and you want to push your right, you, I think people have every right to champion their political views, mm. whatever they are. But my critique is when um, those things become conflated with your um, Christian beliefs and faith and actually see that as the correct expression of your Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And, and that's quite alarming where a number of Christian leaders, even fairly mainstream Christian leaders would say that voting Republican is the only option for a Christian. And if you vote Democrat, you can't be a real Christian. And I, I think, well, something major has gone wrong there mm-hmm. um, for a variety of reasons. Um, one of them is to decide what are the Christian values and, and which party best represents those values. Um, and and the, the Christian right, it seems to me, has accepted a narrative where um, certain things are the Christian values that we fight for and other things are not Christian values, whereas my reading of the Bible might throw some of those things into question, um, that, that actually maybe it's more Christian to support some other values than the ones that you have assumed are the Christian values. But also there's a view that um, really what we need to be doing as Christians is using political power and legislation to enforce a Christian morality on a country that doesn't want it necessarily, mm-hmm. or a country that's much more pluriform than that. Um, and what's going on there that you feel like you need to do that? Um, do you want to overlay a theocracy on a democracy? Do you believe that this is really always meant to be a Christian nation? Uh, is it the kingdom of God on earth? Is it the new Jerusalem? Like, yeah, what's going on there? And do you really believe that God in Christ will bring about his kingdom um, in his way, according to his purposes in his own time? And it's not actually dependent on you at the polls um, voting in the right person who's going to usher in the kingdom of God in America. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm curious, Con, just by way of comparison, because um, I, I'm. I, I think you have accurately captured how many Christians feel. Um, my, um, I, I know many Christians who feel that if you, if you don't vote Republican, then you are undermining your Christian values. Um, in the academic circles in which I also run, I know many. I know many other Christians who feel that you know clearly, voting Democrat is the way that God would want you to vote because of its you know, because of, of their reasons. Um, and that's not to say well, you know, both sides are guilty. That's that's not my point. Uh, I'm curious: is, is there anything comparable in, in in Australian politics? It is like do Australian Christians you know in y'all's local elections? Do y'all it, are, are there Christians there who say you know if you don't vote for the conservative party if you don't vote labor you know is there anything like that in australian politics um nothing like it really in terms really? of the the scale nothing like it in terms of the scale and intensity um i'm sure there are um some who say those sorts of things but but by and large i think um there's no sense that that one party or the other is more or less christian um, I think the reality is, and this is also the reality in America, 
that both that the both both the major parties are mixed. There are some values on the left that resonate strongly with Christians, and there are other things that the left pushes that don't resonate with Christians. And same with the right. Um, and um, and I'll just share my own personal experience. Um, I've voted both ways, uh, and I, I'm not um, loyal to one party over the other because of a, a, a sense that my Christianity determines that I must vote for the Liberal Party or the Labour Party. Um, whereas in America, it's very strongly the case that Christians will vote, um, you know, according to this party. And the, or, like you said, other Christians will be like, no, the Christian vote is this way. Um, and I just think it's way more complicated than that. Um, and, but I also acknowledge, therefore, there, there are no simple answers. And mm -hmm. so I, I don't think the remedy for this is to go, hey, you should vote for the other party. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is um, maybe step back from partisan politics altogether and think about how can the church have a role in the political sphere that's not partisan, actually, um, and um, but rather I would call it how can we be prophetic, meaning how can you sort of stand to the side a bit and call out problems on the left and the right? and call out for justice and mercy and love, regardless of who's in power. Uh, and, and actually, by having a nonpartisan voice in the political sphere, uh, you're able to avoid this sort of compromise where allegiance to one party, well, you might get some things that you want, but it's coming with a lot of baggage that really has nothing to do with Christianity and may, in fact, be antithetical to the gospel. Uh, you know, and so I think a great illustration of that difference is the difference between the civil rights movement in the 1960s and the religious right movement beginning in the 1980s. Okay. So the civil rights movement was a political movement. Of course it was, but it wasn't, um, uh, it wasn't connected to any particular party. It was a political movement saying, well, who, whoever's in power, we want. Uh, equal rights, and uh, we believe it's important that this and that, and and the way it worked was a slow process of persuading the American public that you know civil justice needs to occur here, and when the American public eventually became persuaded, politic the the politics follows, you know, because the politicians have to follow the will of the people ultimately, or they won't get elected. Um, and whereas what the religious right did was that they sort of short, they wanted a shortcut rather than persuade the American people that this is the way we should go. They went, let's just go straight to political power. Mm -hmm. uh, and so just tried to get their people in office and tried to influence those who were in office to do this or that. And then it'll be a top down thing. You know, Christian morality will win because it will be legislated and will use political power. And uh, I think it's fair to say that the enduring result of the civil rights movement continue to this day, um, that that deeply impacted the American soul and psyche and mind, um, whereas the religious right failed to do that. And in fact, if anything, the American public has um, rejected reacted against it 
um, and seen it as a, as a kind of collapsing of traditional Christianity and a deep hypocrisy. So, um, so that that's a kind of example that I think demonstrates what I'm trying to say. Be prophetic. Try to persuade people based on argument, based on persuasion, rather than go through this shortcut to political power, which actually doesn't work because it's been shown. James Davison Hunter, I think, has shown that um, people very rarely change their minds through political power. Um, you can coerce people through political power, but you can't transform them by political power. And uh, people's hearts and minds are transformed um, by persuasion, by intellectual inquiry, by the arts, um, you know, um, by those sorts of things that work more at a grassroots level. Yeah. So to, to summarize maybe what you've presented here, you would encourage Christians, particularly in the U.S., uh, not to, for their first move, not to be a political move in, all right, you know, this is, this is what God teaches us, this is what Jesus taught us, and so in order to ensure that that happens, we will go petition our legislators to craft this legislation to enforce this particular kind of thing. You think it would be more compelling, more persuasive, more effective for Christians to work on, um, you know, work on embodying that themselves in in love, in in truth, in justice, and you know, leading others to similar conclusions, where there's really more of a cultural shift rather than mm -hmm. political enforcement have, have i kind of accurately captured what you've got there that's a that's a really very good summary yeah i think so uh it's the early church method which yeah. was before constantine emperor constantine who famously or infamously converted to christianity uh the church was already huge in the empire even though facing terrible persecution and marginalization and misunderstanding in lots of ways because they were known for their love and they preached Jesus, but they embodied the love of Jesus in the way they cared for the poor and the sick and the outcast. Uh, and um, that had a huge effect um, and, and won a great following. Um, and it really had nothing to do with trying to uh, influence the empire through political partisanship or politi political uh, manipulation. Uh, it's just not the way societies work. And it, what I'm suggesting is a much slower approach because it actually involves individuals and churches and communities working together to be an influence for good. But it means um, it actually means embodying the way of Jesus because he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. That's his. That's what he commissioned christians to do that's the great commission he didn't say go and win political elections um so that republican values will dominate the cultural landscape that's not part of the great commission and uh, and in fact um if you, the irony is if you do what jesus says to do to go and make disciples you actually could under god so transform a culture that it actually wants to 
um, vote a certain way to sure. reflect their own values. Yeah. But that's a very different approach than sort of like, let's change the legislation and push it down on everyone. That mm. won't work and it never will. Yeah. One thing that um, that was very, very helpful for me in my, in my political development, um, I think we were talking about this before, before we started recording, um, it, 2016, you know, I'm, I'm in my, I'm two years into a PhD program and, um, you know, I'm seeing the, uh, I'm seeing levels of devotion towards, uh, then candidate Trump that were this you know, amongst Christians. It was very off-putting, but reminded me of levels of devotion towards candidate and then eventually president Obama amongst Christians that were very off-putting. And I thought, my goodness, you know, those, you know, those who are upset about the one are embracing it when their side does it. Um, you mentioned earlier, right. You know, rightly you know, criticize uh, Bill Clinton's infidelities. Um, but why then turn a blind eye to Donald Trump's? Yeah. Um, I, so I you know, begin to be disgusted with the with the hypocrisy of it. And then in the spring of 2017, I finished up my coursework and it was a revelation seminar with Craig Keener. And mm. you know, reading through Revelation and, and really seeing, you know, not just the spiritual worldview, and so again to tie us into why we've spent so much time emphasizing worldview in Ephesians, but seeing the worldview mm. implicit in Revelation. I'm I'm politically much more aware at that point in my life than I've ever been. I began reading Revelation almost as a political philosophy, <laughs> where it's like this is exceedingly dangerous. You know, the this kind of uh this kind of um you know relationship with with governing powers because of how they can easily be so corrupted by uh, overtly satanic forces. And, uh, and so you know, w with all of that, you know, happening, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced with what you have presented, basically, that you know, for Christians to, to go first to the, you know, what I would see and describe as the, the violence inherent mm. in sort of what what the state does and, and or maybe how the state does it mm. uh, that's a that's a very risky proposition when first jesus presents a, a you know a kind of voluntary um, message of you know come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden uh, rather mm. than you know i'm going to get you if you don't kind of thing yeah um yeah i i do admit that I struggle with this, and I th this will be a tease that we will have to maybe end on, uh, um, unless you want to make a quick comment afterwards, because I, I know we're near the end of our time. But I do struggle with this. Uh, for example, as a Christian, I, of course, would think that murder is wrong, um, and I do think it's worth you know legislating against that. I, I think that's you know, pretty pretty reasonable. Hot take coming in: Mur murder is bad, and we should be illegal. <laughs> um, mm. But as a Christian, I also think that, you know, 
sexual infidelity, marital infidelity is wrong. Hmm. I'm hmm. exceedingly uncomfortable with legislating against that. I can't quite verbalize why. There's a host of other issues that I could say, yes, this is clearly wrong. I'm I'm okay with the the state you know, in, enforcing not to do this. This other thing is clearly morally wrong as well uh, because it you know degrades the uh, you know, the image of God within us and, and so on. But I, am I willing to legislate against that? I I don't know. Mm. Mm. I, I'm I admit I'm not quite sure quite how to uh how to delineate why one and not the other mm. and i'm just kind of stuck there i don't know if you want to riff on that or just yeah. say that's a good thought <laughs> look it, it is a good thought it's a tough it's a tough question and I, I don't think i have all the answers but one thing i will say is that um one of the great things a democ democracy is not a perfect system i mean winston churchill said it's the it's the best political system it's the worst political system apart from all the others it's probably the best ones, yeah yeah um so it recognizes it's not a perfect system but one of the great strengths is it, it attempts to reflect where people are at and the reality is i think most people if not all regard murder as wrong mm. but not everyone regards infidelity is wrong or at least not the same level of wrongness it's yeah. a little bit wrong maybe they would say but it's not that big a deal it's bad if you get and caught we might <laughs> right yeah and we might strongly disagree with that um but the reality is we can't enforce our view in a democracy if it's not the majority opinion um and so democracies are you know um empowered the great strength is to they're empowered to reflect the thinking of the people, but the great weakness is they're empowered to reflect the thinking of the people. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah. that shows you that, that really what the Christian mandate ought to be is to influence people, influence culture, influence the way they think. Um, and that will be reflected in the democracy, therefore, rather than the other way around. It doesn't work the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. Khan. Any any last words so, or or you want to end on that one? I think that's I'm I'm happy to end there. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> Sounds good. I really appreciate your time, sir. Where can we keep up with what you're doing? Uh, well, you you have mentioned the two books. I've got a couple of books coming out next year as well. Um, a uh, introduction to Paul um, called "Reading Paul as Christian Scripture" with uh, Baker Academic. Oh. Very good. Um, a tech, textbook introduction and i have my second edition of basics of verbal aspect in biblical greek by zondervan academic coming out next year as well so yeah. stay tuned for those i'm, and, I'm, ex uh, my, I'm excited about both of those yeah and my thank you and my greek jazz album called athena uh, will be released um, in the next few months on all your streaming services very good all right Khan, it was a delight, sir. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Kevin. Good to see you.